Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual Biblical Symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8-9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazzi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible's Literature Podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with The Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Dr. Benton. Good morning, Father Mark. So for the past year, Richard, we have been fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with Father Paul and to hear him expound on various themes and topics critical to the argument he sets forth in The Rise of Scripture. It's been a year. We've come to the end of 2018, and we're at a turning point because what we've realized in our conversations with Father Paul is that the real work, the work that he's been pushing us to do and pointing towards in his lectures, has been the actual discussion of the actual text. If there's one thing that Father Paul taught us, or that we are still trying to learn from Father Paul, is that it is all about the text. And to be able to spend time with Father Paul going verse by verse through the text itself is a great benefit to us. And we would love for our listeners to be able to hear the way that Father Paul teaches when he's really in the text. If you have been listening closely to Father Paul's presentations over the last year, you've heard two things stand out. One, the importance of Genesis 1 through 4, and then by extension, the importance of Genesis 1 through 11, we asked him to present a verse-by-verse exegesis in the original languages of the book of Genesis on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. And we begin today with Father Paul giving an introduction to what he refers to as the language of Scripture. An introduction to the so-called Hebrew of Scripture. Let's call it the language of Scripture. Remember, in my book, I mentioned that it is not referred to as Hebrew at all in the Old Testament. The word Hebrew appears only later and mainly in the New Testament, and thus in reference to the language of the text of the Old Testament. With the language, the adjective linked to it is a geographical adjective. Ashdodite language, Aramaic language, Babylonian language, and so Be it as it may, this language, the language of Scripture, is Semitic, meaning from the family of languages that developed in the ancient and 
less ancient Middle East, like Arabic. And I would like to begin with technicalities that may not seem for my hearers important at the beginning, but again, I need to ask their indulgence and ask them to make an effort to follow, even if it sounds strange to them. The funny thing is that people who know mainly one language, and this is the rule, much more than the exception in the United States, our country, people assume that in the beginning was English and the rest is just on the side. Once more, an effort, please, hearers, and also take notes, because otherwise I'm going to burden you every time I'm commenting on a verse to make long asides. So to save myself and you from the asides, I'm going to do a general introduction, zeroing on the more striking features of the Semitic languages. The other features I'll discuss whenever we meet them. Number one, again, which is extremely strange, even for people who know Greek and Latin already in those times. I'll be referring a lot to Greek and Latin because they are ancient languages and they reflect aspects that are no more in English, but are akin to similar aspects in the Semitic languages. But already the first one, which is very striking, and I say even for those who know Greek and Latin and obviously European languages, is that the alphabet of the Semitic languages consists of consonants. There are no vowels. What we call vowels do not exist. That's why it's very difficult to try to convince my students at the beginning that the famous Aleph, the Alpha, the A, is not a vowel. It is a consonant. And it's a big deal. <laughs> you remember that, both of you. So we do not have vowels. What happened is that later three of the consonants began to be used as supportive of vowels and linked to them. The A, the U, and the E. That's why the sounds, we call them sounds, are three, A, U, E, in Hebrew Semitic languages. So we do not have vowels. What is interesting, and I'm be referring to Arabic grammar because it was developed more than any other Semitic language because the Quran appeared much later and immediately the people who were interested in the Quran developed a very precise grammar of the language. It is unbelievable. It is really very impressive. Referring to Arabic, what we call the vowel is harakat, which means a movement. It's very interesting. And thus, to vocalize, we use the causative verb, the verb that makes you do something, haraka, to move the text to become audible via the harakat, and the plural is harakat. It's very impressive. And that was a test for the people. Let me give the example first, and then I'll go to comment on that, how it is important, because it qualifies the meaning of reading, which is different in English and in Semitic languages, the verb to read. What does it mean to read? I remember how the late patriarch Ignatius IV, when he was dean at the seminary in the early 70s, I was teaching there. And during the services, when the student didn't know what to do, you omit all the vocalic sounds. You try to 
keep them silent, for instance, instead of saying kalbu, dog, you say kalb, the way we speak. I mean, people understand, but that's not the correct way of reading. And he would say harrik, make the text move, use the vowels. This is an aside. But the main conclusion of my mentioning that we have mainly only consonants is that the text has different possibilities until it is moved. But one learns very quickly that usually you have one choice. What happens, and people don't realize that, that those speak Semitic languages, when they read, they have so many choices, but they do them very quickly because they are used to that and only one fits. For instance, to decide whether a verb means I wrote or she wrote, obviously it cannot be both because one does not make any sense. So you make your choices. But what is important, the corollary of that, is that understanding a word depends on its position and thus function in the sentence or phrase. And all of you know how I stress the importance of functionality. Even the same word has a different function in two different texts. And thus, one cannot understand the word except in a sentence. And that, interestingly enough, applies even to English. So whenever I have an example in English, it would be a situation where we have a case of much more so in Semitic languages. (laughs) Notice in the dictionaries, whenever you have a word that is used profusely, the colon in the dictionary is much longer because the writers have to give you different examples to explain to you that table does not mean just one thing. It can mean different things. Just to throw at my hearers an example, the famous multiplication table or the table of the elements. And this is part of the language. So the dictionary is forced to point to such cases. And the ultimate corollary is that unlike English, which one can read correctly, but without understanding it, how many times you would read a word and then you would ask someone else, what does it mean? And you read it correctly. I mean, not all the time, but most of the time. Now, in the Semitic languages, this cannot happen (laughs) because if you read it otherwise, it may have another meaning and affect the entire sentence. So one cannot read without understanding. And with this, I move to the meaning of the verb reading. In Semitic languages, the meaning of reading the way we understand it in English is always to read aloud. And my classic text is from Revelation 1.3, where the translators are forced to add the word aloud. Otherwise, it may not make sense. In Revelation 1.3, we hear, blessed is he who reads aloud the word of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. I'm sure all my hearers understand why you have to add aloud, because in other cases, those who are 
hearing in English or reading in English, do not need aloud because read means to read for yourself. Well, in Semitic languages, the verb to read is already very impressive because it has also the meaning to name. It's classic, the qara, qara'a in Arabic. Whence we have the Quran, something which is read, and thus that has importance for us because our scriptures are not called Quran, something to be read. They are called Rafi, something that is written. But interestingly, what is written is to be read aloud for the others, and that's the importance of that word and thus very early we'll meet that in genesis where adam calls the animals the same verb qara later to call upon god in chapter 4 is also qara and qara is to read aloud you could see it let's say in the passages let's take jeremiah 36 where the king is seated and the scroll is read aloud to him and he hears it. So very important, this connection between writing and hearing. Technically, writing is making a text official, meaning you can't change it anymore. That's why our scripture did not start in an oral tradition, as many Christians like to imagine, because it gives them power over the text. No, it was a written text. Something which is written is written. Remember that classic example from the Gospel of John when the Jews were pressuring Pontius Pilate to change what was written on the cross of Jesus. And he said, well, what's written is written. It's too late now. We can't change it. Anyway, all these are asides, but important because my hearers have to understand that all the features of the language I'm discussing are functional and thus very important. My intention is not to teach them Hebrew for the time being, at least. I hope some of the hearers will make an effort to learn Hebrew, but to take essential and repetitive features so that we would not lose too much time. So one cannot read except aloud. To read for yourself, you don't need to read. Take, for instance, Ugaritic. It's a language that was discovered and obviously you don't have vowels. It has only consonants. And we can read it and understand it because we supply the vowels. Now, suppose one of the old people who spoke Ugaritic would rise from the tomb and tell us, no, this is not exactly how pronounce it. But we know, especially the Semites in the Middle East, it doesn't matter. Syrians and Lebanese and Jordanians and Iraqis and Egyptians move differently, use different vowels for the same word, but we understand one another. It's not a problem. I hope no one will ask how and so on. Just take my word for it. But I would like to show you, as I shall do later, I shall appeal to Greek and Latin, and I'll use them to show you that it is the more so in Semitic languages. But the verb to read in Greek, the one we had in Revelation 1.3, is anaginosko. Technically, anaginosko is from two parts. The verb ginosko, which is to know, to understand. That's the meaning. 
And the proposition ana and kata usually reflect the fullness to know fully, to understand fully. And it is interesting because the Greek reflects the fact that until the official reader understand fully the text, the official reader cannot read it. It is not reading the text. It is just intoning vowels. But to read the text as it is intended, because the assumption is that if a text is written, it must have a meaning. Otherwise, it becomes silly. And the meaning is reflected in a text, let me go back to the Arabic haraka, that is moved. It's a little bit like the music. Here, Holly Benton will be very happy because every time I speak, she says, in music, it's the same thing. Well, <laughs> the funny thing is that I don't know music. I know Byzantine music, but I don't know Western music. I cannot even read music. I can figure out and fall, but I can't. See, it works. And my side examples appealing to other languages, especially Greek and Latin, because they are old and later, as you will notice, I shall appeal even to modern languages because they reflect to some extent features that are found in other languages. From the verb anaginosko that is used in Greek to say, to express, to read, is practically to understand fully. You have to know what you're doing. One more time. In Semitic languages, it is impossible except to read aloud, even when you are reading to yourself, because you must supply the vowels. I don't need to go into how this affects the text. We'll get to it when we have special examples. Otherwise, you know, the introduction will never end, and I need to move to other features. Of the essence is the conjugation, the verbal conjugations. Now, we are used in English to what is called the periphrastic. In other words, you have to add something that originally was not necessary. Let me give an example, which is the pronouns with the verb. When you say to someone in a conjugate, the verb to read, you say, I read, you read, he reads. In Latin and Greek, let alone in Semitic, one does not need that because the ending in each case is different. You say, for instance, the famous verb amo, amas, amat. Amo means I love. Amas means you love. Amat means he or she loves. In other words, you don't need to add the pronoun to figure out what the verb is saying. The same thing is Greek, grapho, graphis, graphi, I write, you write, he writes, and so on and so forth. It's not that it is so. The corollary is that in those languages, if you put the pronoun, because you can do it, it appears sometimes, it immediately reflects emphasis, which means when you say, I love in Latin, you are saying not just I love, you are saying it is I who love or who loves. So the meaning changes with this addition. So 
We have a prime example where the conjugation does not function the way the English conjugation functions. Another feature of the Semitic conjugation is the participle, which is used much more profusely than in other languages. And the same participle, whether active participle or passive participle, can function. So it's a potentiality. It depends on how you're using the participle in a sentence or a phrase. It could be verbal. It function is verbal. You are doing something. Or the noun, the action. Or an adjective. It's either a verb or a noun functionally. Or an adjective. We have this in the so-called gerund in English. Like speaking. The speaking or speaking is, so it's a noun. And then when you hear it as someone is speaking, then it becomes, if you like, more of an adjective or a verb. But let me go back to the Semitic languages. Clearly, the participle can have three different functions, verbal, nominal noun, and adjectival in the sentence. Let's go for a classic one because it is used in my book about shepherd. The same word roe can mean shepherd, meaning the person who shepherds, and it can mean the one who shepherd and thus shepherding. And that is a very interesting feature in Semitic languages where most of the so-called nouns that describe the function or activity of someone are participle, like the writer, when you say the writer and writing. In Semitic languages, writer and writing are exactly the same word. So I'm trying to help my hearers to understand what I would like them to concentrate on. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.